ہیزبلسفلسلام The topics that we shall be discussing today, the two topics, the first one is about um, the recession in the economy and we will talk about why is the UK economy lagging behind US, Germany and other developed economies around the world. And we will um, then mostly focus on the Islamic economic system and what Islamic economic system, um, uh, the real e- Islamic economic system actually promises. Um, so that's the first topic, which we will start around 7.30 a.m. And the second topic then is about um, the migrant uh, crisis. So we'll talk about uh, the 60 migrants that were killed off um, the Italian coast um Uh, last week in a due to a shipwreck um, and we shall enter into a discussion about the migrant crisis uh, in general about it it's something that has been carried today in the newspapers as well uh, as the government is about to come up with a new policy so those are the two topics uh, for this morning please do join us in both of these discussions by calling us at 02086877878 you can also tweet us at voice of islam uk Right, as is the norm, we start off uh, the discussions of the program here with what's appearing in the headlines uh, this morning. So, um, migrant channel, uh, channel crossings lead Monday's coverage in the papers. The Guardian writes that Rishi Sunak faces criticism that his plans are unworkable and will lead to thousands of people fleeing conflict being locked up. One former minister is quoting, calling proposals if briefings and leaks were to be believed a joke. The Daily Express picks up on the theme of a future general election in its front page. Senatories believe the Conservative Party has a better chance of victory in a future vote if new government measures can stop migrant crossings, writes the paper. Channel migrants coming to the UK illegally will be given lifetime bans, according to Daily Mail. The paper reports that ministers hope new measures will deter crossings that will... um, Uh, that will be the illegal migration bill set to be revealed this week is and expected to detail further measures restricting the ability to claim asylum in the UK. The Times continues on the theme of small boats crossing and bans to Britain uh, that John uh, migrants are set to face. However, the second leading story in the page is the news that Boris Johnson has nominated his father for a knighthood. The former Prime Minister put Stanley Johnson's name on his resignation's honours list according to the paper. Clashes between the Prime Minister and Chancellor with Tory backbenchers um, are on the horizon, writes the I newspaper. The paper writes that the tax is the topic of disagreement with the government expected to rule out a cut to cooperation tax in the upcoming budget, putting them what it calls on a collision course with former Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. The Daily Telegraph continues with its coverage on Matt Hancock's leaked WhatsApp messages. The paper reports that former Health Secretary Matt Hancock rejected advice from the UK's Chief Medical Officer to replace 14-day quarantines with five days of testing in November 2020 during the COVID pandemic. 
NHS dentistry in crisis, according to the Daily Mail. Some patients in act of desperation have been removing their own teeth, the paper reports. The High Seas Treaty makes a splash on the Metro's front page. The highly anticipated agreement was signed after 10 years of talks and gives protected status to 30% of international waters by 2030. The Daily Star um, leads with the unhappy snowman on its front page, writing about news that the parts of the UK seem set to be experiencing snow this week. And finally, China has issued its lowest uh, growth goal in three decades, writes the Financial Times. During the annual National People's Congress in Beijing, the figure of 5% was announced as signaling what the paper calls the end to rip-roaring growth. So those were the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. Um, and at this juncture, let me welcome um, my co-host, um, Imam Usman Manan. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. Welcome to the breakfast show. Be with Alikum Salam. Peace be with you as well. How are you today? Very, very well. Absolutely great. How was your weekend? Had an amazing weekend. Mm. You might as well mention it here that yesterday, yeah. um, on Sunday, uh, the inauguration of this uh, this uh, on Saturday. You mean? Yeah. Saturday. Yeah. Yes, Saturday. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I forgot about Sunday. Yeah, Saturday. Saturday, the inauguration of the new right. Battle for Two Mosque complex. Um, happened where His Holiness came, inaugurated the mosque, and yeah. uh, simultaneously uh, also the the peace symposium, yeah. which has been on hold for many years, yeah. uh, continued again with the so two amazing occasions uh, on Saturday. So it was a very good uh, weekend. Absolutely, and yeah, this this um, mosque um, is is an absolute landmark uh, now. Uh, I think it's uh, it's landmark for the entire city of London, not just in the local modern area, and something to really behold mm-hmm. and visit. So, uh, anybody listening out there who hasn't really seen the uh, the newly uh, reconstructed part of the mosque um, is is missing something. So that's really something that I think you should be mm-hmm. part of part of your calendar um, uh, this year. <laughs> it was already one of the biggest mosques in Europe. Yes, the biggest probably, and uh, it's yeah. going even bigger now. Yeah, it is absolutely bigger and beautiful. Yeah, definitely. A lot more pretty. A very well. unique design. Yes, it's, it's absolutely marvelous. Night. Yes, one of the MPs uh, who was uh, at the guest um, the conference actually said that you know as she was coming out of uh, the tube station, you know you you can see the mosque from from far afield and she as soon as she saw she, she you know uh, it was a, a breathtaking moment for her because mm-hmm. with the lights on in the in the evening it was really uh, something to see right okay um so anything that uh, caught your eye this morning um yes uh, i would like to start with actually um this uh, peace symposium which happened on saturday sure. um his uh, holiness uh, at um, came gave gave the keynote address, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, and he delivered uh, after after the uh, um, after the MP spoke and he delivered a keynote address addressing the key issue in today's problems, uh, especially relating to the war, which was as obvious uh, as always it was about peace as the symposium is about. So Hazu's um, address was just so simple and to the point. And every time it's like that, that you, you listen to it and you just think to yourself that is that all 
it is like is, is that the only issue mm. so Hazur His Holiness he, he explains this so well he brings forward the most important points and you think even though it's a very complicated war but the solution is very simple he he makes complicated issues very simple that that's yeah. the, you know that's the thing about him he he just you know uh look he has a very different angle obviously he's he's um he's divinely guided and he just um he just simplifies everything i think is is more than giving his own opinions it's he represents what islam is about Absolutely. he represents yeah. what hmm. what the true solution is instead of giving your own opinions we should do this and that he as he mentioned in his address is that first of all he mentioned some um, some of the economists who wrote uh, how the situation of uh, ukraine and uh, russia is mm. escalating and they're stopping communication they're going to you know it's going towards a full on war and hazur mentioned that this is not the solution first of all you need to keep the communication open because this is without communication you'll never have peace all these wars most of mostly 99% happen because of misunderstanding because of misunderstanding or or miscalculation miscalculation yeah mm. so he said you need to keep these channels open mm. and this is like a very simple point but when it's followed you will hopefully inshallah in the future see see the fruits of it that yeah. because of some communication because of some misunderstanding which was resolved mm. we could have, we can prevent a whole war and and a huge war i mean yeah. world war 3 um i think it was einstein who said that i don't know about world war 3 but world war four would be fought with sticks and stones mm. Mm. so that that's how catastrophic it will end yes absolutely and and one of the points he he made during his uh, his ad- address uh, which really hit home was that um you know uh, some of the uh, western senior <laughs> government leaders have been saber rattling and and saying that you know there will be uh, there will be repercussions for russia as soon as uh, uh, as the war ends there will yeah. be sanctions on russia there will be maybe even nuremberg nuremberg style um um uh, trials as well and as well said well if you if you say those things now what incentive are you giving russia to come to the peace table i mean just exactly. think about it it's it's just common sense and as you said earlier you know he just makes things so simple he's you know it's it, it is such a such an obvious thing but mm-hmm. nobody um nobody thinks about it i mean that's uh, that's the beauty of it so uh, uh yeah so one of the advice that he gave to world leaders was that please uh, you know uh, understand the gravity of the situation this war can easily spread um and um uh, stop saber saber rattling and and come to come to the peace table talk peace yeah i think this is when you truly want peace this is the kind of dialogue you have mm. you don't take sides that oh, whether russia is wrong or right it does mm. not matter at this point mm. their punishment will come later but if you already start with this like watch watch when i mm. when i'm done with you you know you already threaten him that once you finish we'll attack you even more mm. so just as as holiness mentioned what, why would russia give in if they know that if i stop fighting i'll be punished yeah if i so then he will this russia will think that if i keep fighting maybe i have a chance of not yeah, being exactly punished. absolutely yeah i think that uh, you, remember in the in the first world war mm. after the first world war germany was given such harsh sanctions hmm. um and uh, those sanctions were the the cause of another world of war of the second world war Absolutely. the second world war started Spot because on. germany was saying 
the sanctions you've put on us, yeah. first of all, they're too harsh. Yeah. It's something we don't deserve that much. Yeah. And secondly, it was that all the blame was put on Germany. Yeah, even though like other countries Germany were Germany was solely blamed yeah. for that war. I mean, exactly. <laughs> and that so caused true. another world yeah. war and the same thing could have happened here. Uh, same thing can absolutely can happen sorry, here. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. I think the, the, the analogy is so apt because, again, Russia is being solely blamed uh, for this war. And um, mm-hmm. uh, and and you're right. Uh, I don't think we uh, uh, it would be wise to 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 do that. One should learn uh, lessons from history, rather than um, and and I think somebody said if you don't um, learn lessons from history, you are condemned to repeat it. So unfortunate. I I hope mm-hmm. that it doesn't come to that unfortunate um, situation. Right. Let's uh, take a quick break on that note, and when we come back, we will continue this. Uh, discussion on what's appearing in the newspapers uh, uh, this morning. And uh, at 7.30, we shall start discussing our first topic, which is about what are the causes for recession in the in the U- in the UK economy and why is UK economy lagging behind other economies? And, and we'll focus um, mostly on the Islamic um, uh, aspect, Islamic economic system and what that promises. So please do stay stay tuned. We shall be back right after this quick break. Life of Muhammad, peace be upon him. High moral qualities. Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was always very patient in adversity. He was never discouraged by adverse circumstances, nor did he permit any personal desire to get a hold over him. It has been related that his father had died before his birth and his mother died while he was still a little child. Up to the age of eight, he was in the guardianship of his grandfather, and after the latter's death, he was taken care of by his uncle, Abu Talib, both on account of natural affection and also because he had been specially admonished in that behalf by his father. Abu Talib always watched over his nephew with care and indulgence, but his wife was not affected by these considerations to the same degree. It often happened that she would distribute something among her own children, leaving out their little cousin. If Abu Talib chanced to come into the house on such an occasion, he would find his little nephew sitting apart, a perfect picture of dignity, and without a trace of sulkiness or grievance on his face. The uncle, yielding to the claims of affection and recognizing his responsibility, would run to the nephew, clasp him to his bosom and cry out, Do pay attention to this child of mine also. Do pay attention to this child of mine also. Such incidents were not uncommon, and those who were witnesses to them were unanimous in their testimony that the young Muhammad, peace be upon him, never gave any indication that he was in any way affected by them, or that he was in any sense jealous of his cousins. Later in life, when he was in a position to do so, he took upon himself the care and upbringing of two of his uncle's sons, Ali, peace be upon him, and Jafir, peace be upon him, and discharged this responsibility in the most excellent manner. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, throughout his life, had to encounter a succession of bitter experiences. He was born an orphan, his mother died while he was still a small child, and he lost his grandfather at the age of eight years. After marriage, he had to bear the loss of several children, one after the other, and then his beloved and devoted wife, Khadija, died. Some of the wives he married after Khadija's death died during his lifetime, and towards the close of his life, he had to bear the loss of his son, Ibrahim. He bore all these losses and calamities cheerfully, and none of them affected in the least degree either his high resolve 
or the urbanity of his disposition. His private sorrows never found vent in public, and he always met everybody with a benign countenance and treated all alike with uniform benevolence. On one occasion, he observed a woman who had lost a child, occupied in loud mourning, over her child's grave. He admonished her to be patient and to accept God's will as supreme. The woman did not know that she was being addressed by the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and replied, If you had ever suffered the loss of a child as I have, you would have realized how difficult it is to be patient under such an affliction. The Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, observed, I have suffered the loss not of one, but of seven children, and passed on. Except when he referred to his own losses or misfortunes in this indirect manner, he never cared to dwell upon them, nor did he permit them in any manner to interfere with his unceasing service to mankind and his cheerful sharing of their burdens. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from Southland Studios of Voice of Islam. Today is Monday, the 6th of March, 2023. The time is 7.22 a.m. and you're listening to your host, Daniel Zia and Imam Usman Manan. We're talking about um, what's appearing in the newspapers this morning. Um, so Rishi Sunak's plan for small boats uh, is uh, is something which has been um, carried by uh, a lot of newspapers this morning. And according to The Guardian, this will lock up people who are fleeing war. So according um, uh, to The Guardian, uh, Rishi Sunak is facing a lot of criticism that his proposed laws on small boat crossings will be um, and, and saying will be unworkable and lead to tens of thousands of people fleeing war and persecution being locked up. The Prime Minister is set to publish this new legislation this week, aimed at detaining and deporting all those who enter the UK via small boats crossing the channel. A Whitehall uh, Whitehall source briefing um, on the plan confirmed that even children could be detained with their families as as the government seeks to stop an estimated 60,000 people a year from making the Paris journey from mainland Europe. Previous plans to report those entering the UK by small boat to Rwanda have been rejected by the courts, but Number 10 and the Home Office are proposing to insert a break on human rights legislation in an attempt to stop legal challenges. However, campaigners are extremely concerned that it will lead to the inhumane and costly detention of tens of thousands of refugees. The only safe routes currently available to those wishing to seek asylum in the UK are through limited schemes for Ukraine, Afghanistan and Hong Kong. Former Conservative ministers and an ex-permanent secretary of the Home Office, David Normington, cast doubts on the feasibility of the plans, especially without any agreement with France aimed at pre- preventing small boats setting off or reaching the UK. <clears throat> One former uh, minister said the proposals, if you believe the briefings and the leaks are a joke, and I just cannot see how they will get on to the statute books. They look like an attempt to get into the general election with some clear blue water between us and Labour. Propose a hardline law, have it stopped by the EU and, and the courts. Blame lefty lawyers and Labour for being soft on immigration. They added that the idea the government under Boris Johnson and Theresa May just failed to see this easy fix of circumventing laws with another law without years of legal wrangling just doesn't wash. Another former prime minister said, um, another former minister rather said that the proposals will face a backlash from conservative MPs from both wings of the party. Many will not want to see extended detentions, while others were 
in the military, who were in the military, will uh, feel deeply uncomfortable seeing a foreign comrades labeled as illegal because they could not get here via safe route. It is not plain sailing. Other conservative MPs who have criticized previous plans in relation to Rwanda said they had been assured by Number 10 that the new proposals were compatible with the law, but they would wait to see the final legislation before passing judgment. Normington told Times Radio, I really don't see how the Prime Minister's objectives are going to be achieved. Obviously, he's going to pass some legislation first, and there may be more to it than we have heard. But unless you manage the system properly, the legislation will be ineffective. Under the proposals, those who claim asylum are expected to face being kept for up to 28 days in detention facilities, one source said. They said the new laws could also apply equally to those under 18, even if they travel to the UK alone. If everyone who crossed the channel last year was detained for 28 days, on 4th September, 9,161 people would have been detained, the Refugee Council said, four times the current detention estate capacity of 2,286. The Mail also reported that those detained and reported would also face a life ban on ever returning to the UK. Chris Heaton-Harris, the Northern Ireland Secretary, hinted on Sunday that there would be more safe and legal routes for refugees to come to the UK alongside the legislation, but the government has previously suggested this could be delayed until small small boat crisis um, or small boat crossings crisis has been curbed. Analysis by the Refugee Council shows that all those who have crossed the channel last year, two-thirds would be granted asylum with half from Afghanistan, Iran, Eritrea, Sudan or Syria. It said the cost to the taxpayer based on the Home Office prediction of 65000 making the crossings in 2023 would be $219 million a year for 28 days in detention or $1.4 billion for six months. Enver Solomon, chief executive of the Refugee Council, said these plans shatter the UK's long-standing commitment under the UN Convention to give people a fair hearing regardless of the path they have taken to reach our shores. They will simply add more cost and chaos to the system. So um, that was uh, the story that's uh, carried by The Guardian this morning. And uh, we shall also enter into uh, a discussion on the migrants and the migrant uh, crisis around 8.15 a.m. So please do stay tuned and we shall be talking to uh, two guests from both Amnesty UK as well as uh, British Red Cross. So please do listen in to that. Uh, The first topic um, that we shall start in about uh, two minutes time is about um, the UK economy lagging behind US, Germany and others. So we shall take a quick break now and when we come back we shall delve right into uh, that topic and um, we shall be talking to uh, an imam in the um, the Muslim community about the Islamic economic system in that segment as well. So we shall be back right after this, uh, this quick break and when we come back we shall delve right into the first topic, which is about why is the UK economy lagging behind US, Germany and others? Please do stay tuned. Allah, 
كبر أشهد أن لا أشهد أن محمدا You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Welcome back to the Breakfast Show. We are starting our first segment. And we will be talking, um, as mentioned by Daniel, uh, the UK economy is struggling and people are feeling it in their pockets as wages fail to keep up with rising prices. So we'll discuss why the UK is still, I think, a little bit behind uh, many other European countries uh, because of the uh, since the since the big um, uh, hit after the Ukrainian war and other factors uh, and. Uh, I'm sure like we still feel that Brexit also still plays a role in this. The International Monetary Fund, the IMF, predicts the UK economy will shrink this year while every other major economy will grow. The Bank of England also forecasts a recession in the UK in 2023, albeit one that is shorter and less severe than previously forecast. So... According, um, uh, there's also a recession that is currently happening uh, at, at the Bank of England, as previously forecasted. This has been contributed by the pandemic, the war in the Ukraine, and the living cost crisis with energy and food prices. But why is the UK seemingly faring worse than other rich countries, such as, such as the US, Germany and France? It was mentioned by the BBC News that forecasts are never perfect. There are so many factors that affect economic growth, from geopolitics to uh, the weather uh, that in- inevitably predict- um, p- predictions often miss the mark, but they can point in the right direction. And the existing evidence shows other countries have taken less of a hit from the huge challenges of recent years than the UK has. Figures from the Organization of Economic uh, Cooperation and Development, which looks at how rich countries are performing, show the UK economy fell further than others in the first months of the pandemic. The UK's pace of recovery was fast once the economy reopened, but not fast enough to make up the lost ground. But the difference between the UK and others may not be quite as big as it appears. That's because most countries measure the output of their public service, such as health and education, based on the costs in a nurse's wage, for example. In the UK, they are accounted for differently by valuing the service delivered, such as operations in hospital. As a result, the UK's figures better reflect the impact of closed schools and cancelled operations during COVID, as well as disruption due to strikes. So, uh, according to these uh, um, statements UK might not be as far behind as uh, it seems um, which is like it estimates about um, the cost of Brexit um, hmm. because of Brexit uh, I mean that the the difference is about 4% in terms of Brexit so if, if UK yeah. did remain in the EU 
they could have had a 4% um, increase in the economy. Which translates into roughly about 100 billion pounds a year. Um, mm. That's according to Bloomberg, uh, a report that they have pu- published in terms of uh, what is uh, Brexit costing the UK economy. Um, and, and this is um, there are lots of factors, but one of them, of course, is that EU workers are unable to freely come over to work, uh, making it harder for hospitality, agriculture uh, and care sectors to find enough staff. Mr. Emerson, the deputy director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, says the EU is a very rich part of the world and we've chosen for better or worse uh, to make trade with that group of countries a lot more difficult. So it's clearly going to be something that makes it harder for the UK UK economy to grow. Business mm-hmm. um, investment has stagnated since the referendum vote in 2016, which has also affected the growth of the economy. Uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine sent global energy prices soaring. Uh, the impact uh, has varied across countries, but has also hit the UK economy hard. The, U- the US has... Uh, or has its own domestic sources of fossil fuels, for example, and some European countries have more alternative sources of energy, according to Mr. Emerson. France, for example, has a large nuclear um, uh, electricity generation network, and Norway has significant hydropower. But Britain is pretty exposed, um, according to Mr. Emerson, from the Institute of uh, Fiscal Studies. Um uh, moreover, the UK, the way the UK prices uh, electricity is based on the cost of gas, the most expensive form of, of electricity generation. This has also pushed up bills across the country and has therefore also had a big impact on inflation as well. Um, so lots going on um, there. The British pound um, uh, has um, lost 40% amongst uh, major currencies uh, since um, uh, since the uh, discussions on Brexit started. The UK is uh, the only G7 economy to remain uh, at the same level in terms of growth um, at, the, um, at the pre-pandemic levels. So that's a bit of a background on where the UK economy is and, um, uh, a, and, and what are some of the factors that are causing the economy to lag behind others, uh, Brexit being, of course, one of them. But uh, we want this discussion to be uh, to be about the Islamic economic system. And we promised at the beginning of the show that uh, we shall talk about what, what does Islam promise and, and how is uh, an Islamic economic system, a real economic, uh, Islamic economic system, different from a capitalist system or even a communist system uh, for that matter. And to talk to us more about this, um, we are now joined by Imam Sabahat Karim, all the way from Huddersfield. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Wa alaikum Thank you for having me. Thank you, Imam Sahib, for, um, <clears throat> for joining us. Um, a pleasure to have you. So, Imam Sabahat, um, if I can uh, start by... Um, by asking, firstly, if you can just tell us a little bit about your work in, in Huddersfield, um, uh, how do you support the, the local community there? Um, yes, I serve as a missionary uh, in the Amdiya Muslim community, uh, in particular in the Huddersfield branch. Um, as an imam, as a missionary, my role is quite uh, diverse in its nature. Um, so I look after the needs of the community members in relation to religious education, to spiritual and moral development. 
Um, I also conduct religious services on a daily basis, which means uh, leading five daily prayers, giving sermons and, you know, talks on self-development, etc. Um, my, you know, role also entails to visit members house to house. I also preach on streets. Um, I also arrange charitable initiatives. So it is quite diverse uh, in its scope. Amazing. Um, thank you very much, Imam Sabat. Could you share with our listeners the Islamic views on uh, the economic growth? As you probably just heard that UK is uh, a little bit behind uh, many many other rich countries. And uh, what would be the best way to improve the economy of the UK? Yes, uh, it, it's a very fundamental question for any strong government. Um, when we look at, obviously, Islam, we find that the guiding book, which is the Holy Quran, and the Prophet, who is the founder of Islam, he, both, they both have elaborated the responsibilities both of the rulers and the subjects. So the Islamic system of governance is uh, fundamentally uh, democratic, based on free and fair elections in the best sense of the word. Um, it also ensures that justice is prevailed and incentives are provided uh, you know, to the individuals to achieve excellence. Mm-hmm. And also basic needs of the poor and the needy, needy are obviously uh, you know, provided. So in essence, um, the economic system of Islam lies in an appropriate combination of individual freedom, as it's been described in one of the very uh, you know, known books uh, in our community. Uh, the book is called The Economic System of Islam, and it's been written by our second khalif, uh, His Holiness Mizam Bashiruddin Mahmoud Ahmad May Allah have mercy on him. So he actually describes this system. He says that the essence of the economic system of Islam lies in an appropriate combination of individual freedom with state intervention. And then he further elaborates that it allows state intervention to a certain extent, but it also provides for individual freedom. A proper balance between these two defines the Islamic economic system. Individual freedom is granted to enable persons to build up assets and spend them voluntarily in order to gain the spiritual benefits. And state intervention, on the other hand, is provided in order to protect the poor uh, for from uh, economic exploitation by the wealthy. So, in essence, you know, His Holiness has described that hope and aspirations are vital for national progress, a nation where people no longer have aspirations or where its poor are, you know, denied basic rights, is inevitably destined to be ruined. Um, so this is, this is a, in a very, you know, nutshell, the summary of uh, Islamic economic system. Very beautifully put and very, very, <clears throat> very deep insight on uh, His Holiness, the second caliph of the Hamdiya Muslim community. Um, recently, there was also another um, research or statement which came out that the richest 1% of the UK uh, has become even richer by, uh, I don't remember, I think 30-40% and the rest of the 65% their their wealth has grown very very little. So um, obviously this has a lot to do with interest rate as interest will, you know, keeps making the rich people richer and keeps the poor people poor. So what does Islam uh, tell us about interest? What's Islam's view on dealing with interest? Interest in Islam uh, has been explicitly declared forbidden uh, by the Holy Quran. Um, rather, it has been described in the Holy Quran, and the one who takes interest 
um, you know, wages war against God and his messenger. So Muslims, you know, in totality have been um, admonished in the Holy Quran and by the Prophet himself to stay altogether from, from interest. Um, rather, the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of God be upon him, he emphasized the wickedness of interest on numerous occasions. And he mentioned that he denounced those who receive it, those who pay it out, those who are involved in its official business, and those who serve as witness for it as well. Also, just to you know, add in, the founder of the MDA Muslim community himself, the promised Messiah, he has also highlighted the seriousness of this sin, uh, which is dealing with the interest. And he said that, you know, when you study the Holy Quran, you find that God has permitted the consumption of pork when it comes to driven by necessity. But he says that he did not, meaning God, did not say that it was permitted to deal with interest under such circumstances. So the main reason interest is prohibited uh, in Islam, as we mentioned, the con- and the reason is because uh, it makes the richer, you know, rich people more richer and the poor more poorer. So to charge interest or to take advantage of a destitute one is basically exploitation. And this practice is frowned upon Islam. Islam rather encourages to assist the needy. I'll just end my, you know, uh, just answer with the brief hadith, the saying of the Prophet, where he said that, you know, God will show compassion to those who show kindness while buying, selling, and recovering the debts. So meaning Islam lays heavy emphasis on assisting those who are, you know, and those who are in need, and they should be helped, you know, without uh, exploitation, without taking advantage of their of, of their situation. Yes, definitely. Uh, you know, it's very uh, quite common sense um, in relation to interest, um, because if somebody takes borrows money from you, and he has to pay it back with interest, so he's already in need. That's why he's borrowing money in the first place. If he borrows a thousand pounds from you, and uh, you ask him to pay you back with interest. So he's already struggling and when, when it comes to paying back, you want him to pay even more. So this the system is just flawed in, in at the very basic. You know, the why would he come to you asking you for money if um he, he later on you're gonna increase the price, keep increasing the price. And if you're lucky, you can make something with that money. You can make a business, you can make your own money and you're able to pay that interest. But if you're unlucky and you you missed your opportunity again or you messed up somewhere or sometimes it's not your fault because of the society or something, uh, once you're in that cycle, it's so hard to come out. So, uh, you know, and it's in, the, in today's society, especially in the UK as well, a lot of people are struggling and interest does play a role. But there's also other factors. And uh, can you tell us what Islam teaches us about helping such needy people uh, in today's environment? Yes, you know, Islam actually expects from the rich uh, that to reach out to the needy. Um, and st- uh, it actually makes them strive to heal their you know, bruised hearts. Islam expects the rich to achieve um, such high morals, uh, you know, after doing everything in their power in service of the poor, they should not regard themselves as superior for being charitable. Islam also says that rich, you know, must not remind the poor of their help, nor should they consider it as a favor to to the recipient. Rather, the rich should constantly engage in self-examination if they have fulfilled, you know, their God-given obligation. So the rich must not content themselves in just helping the poor, 
uh, in Islam, rather Islam admonishes them that they should persuade their friends and relatives to do similarly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everyone should collectively work to improve the nation's well-being and support each other, uh, each other in this effort. And the next stage is obviously, despite all the good works, uh, they are still, uh, you know, the rich people should be, you know, should consider that uh, have they done enough uh, to please the Creator. So this cycle should continue that where the richer have been given a very, uh, you know, big responsibility to always look after the uh, needs of, of those who, who are de- in destitute. There's a saying of the Prophet as well, where the Prophet, you know, honest Muslim, he said that he, if anyone fulfills uh, his brother's needs, God Almighty will fulfill his needs. If, you know, one, if a Muslim relieves uh, someone of his troubles, then God will relieve his troubles on the Day of Judgment. So again, there is an exhortation of helping those who are in need uh, in Islam. There's a heavy emphasis. Uh, it starts from, you know, in the Holy Quran. It's, you know, it's repeated with verses. And the Holy Prophet himself has emphasized. He has, in fact, him, with his own example, has, you know, shown that how, um, you know, Muslims should always be at the forefront to help those who are in need. Amazing. And, uh, you know, you probably heard that with great power comes great responsibility. Uh, is You probably don't hear this much, but is there any advice you would give to rich people? Um, let's say who's, who are saying, I already give charity or I already um, give certain charities or I already do some community work. Um, why am I asked to do even more? What could you say to someone with such mindset? The thing is, you know, when you get into the habit of uh, doing something virtuous, uh, when you once you get into the habit of doing something good for the greater society, I feel there's a, there's a tranquility which falls on your on, on your heart, and that feeling actually expands when you continue with that good work. And to be honest, those who are involved in these charitable work, and they do so because they feel that they are getting that contentment. Um, from somewhere, you know, for mm-hmm. many, uh, they don't believe in God, uh, they don't believe in uh, the higher being. For them, just doing a good virtue brings, you know, a peace of mind, peace of soul. So I think that uh, that impact itself, you know, uh, urges them to continue with the good work. However, yes, for a starter, for someone who's, let's say, admonished by someone, uh, you know, to do something good, for him, he may not or she may not feel that contentment or peace of mind in the beginning. You know, it's just like, you know, going to the gym, uh, early days are very difficult for your, for your muscles. But yeah. once you continue with something, then you see the results. So similarly, I would urge that member, the person who is in, in, still in doubt, that continue, don't give up. Uh, you will feel the impact, you will feel the, you know, the benefit of it, as everyone else does. Because uh, after all, you know, goodness, uh, you know, never hurts uh, in, in any way. Um, helping others always, you know. Uh, bring smiles not on your face uh, on other people so we should not be selfish all the time we should obviously um, it should not be always that what are my needs but we should always as as islam describes should always look after the needs of others as well and do you think it's 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 something bad or something uh, um, disregarded to be rich in islam because islam focuses so much on giving what what does islam say about um being rich is is there anything wrong or is, is is there any objection to that no of course not of course not um islam rather you know encourages every every muslim to work hard um to earn to provide for his family to have a decent living style a living standard uh, you know there's a saying that it reminds me where a, a companion came to the prophet and he said that you know man likes to wear nice fine clothing man mm-hmm. likes to 
wear nice shoes and likes to, you know, uh, be in a very presentable manner. Is that something which Islam doesn't allow? The Prophet said, no, of course not. You know, Islam rather, you know, encourages one to look after his needs, etc. So yes, being when you speak, when you use the term rich, if it means that you have enough for yourself and by the, with the means you can help the others, then the definition of rich obviously is supported in Islam. But if by being rich, uh, if, it, if it means that you're just you know filling your own belly, uh, if you're filling your own stomach only, and you're not looking after mm-hmm. uh, you know, the people of need in the society, then of course that is something which is not encouraged in Islam. So yes, people are you know permitted to work hard and you know gain capital to earn more and to live a very good lifestyle. But at the same time, a greater responsibility is you know uh, given on them. You know, there are many examples, obviously time doesn't permit me in the history of Islam, even the companions of the Holy Prophet, uh, even the Khulafa, the successors of the Holy Prophet, uh, some of them were very, very affluent um, because they worked very hard in their life. But however, we find that at one stage they were very affluent, but on the other hand, they spent very little on, on their own needs. Large mm-hmm. amount of their earnings were spent, you know, for the good, men, for the good of society. Um, so yes, again, as I said, rich uh, people uh, are not frowned upon in Islam, but a greater responsibility comes, you know, with uh, with uh, with that. Thank you very much. And just to finish off, if you could give um, uh, maybe not too many, but a few examples of uh, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, how he used to treat people in need, and what uh, what um, examples he has set for us. The life of the Prophet uh, for every Muslim, uh, you know, is, is a guiding, is a guiding tool, is a guiding light, and his life is full of, you know, examples where he, he was kind to our in need. He was always, you know, forward to assist those who needed his help. In fact, you know, when he was in his prime age, in his prime youth, he entered into a treaty called in Arabic Hilful Fuzul, which means that, uh, you know teenagers or you know some youth members they got together and they they made a pledge that they would help those who are in need mm-hmm. and there are many occasions where the prophet you know himself you know went beyond his power and means to help someone who was in need and there are many examples you know prophet also uh, there's a saying as well where the prophet said that you know on the day of judgment god will ask that oh son of adam uh, i was hungry or i was thirsty but you did not attend to me and the man would say, you know, oh Lord, how could I have attended to you? You are the Lord of all the worlds. Mm. But the God will respond to, to him and would say that, you know, did you not know that such of such and such of my servant was hungry or thirsty, etc.? But you did not attend to him. You know, had you done so, you would have found me near him. So these sort of exhortations have been, you know, given by the Prophet to encourage Muslims to, you know, to help uh, in need. Just speaking of, you know, we're speaking of the financial system here and and how obviously and the rich are becoming more richer and obviously the poor are becoming poorer and we've um, you know discussed that how islam encourages to help those who need there's an yeah. example that i wanted to present of the prophet as well you know we we see that the prophet actually freed many slaves and there was one uh, such companion uh, salman farsi may god be pleased with him uh, he he was a slave to a jew as well and uh, salman farsi he once asked his master that you know how much would it cost him to gain his complete freedom uh, from slavery and he, his master obviously conditioned a very high price, which was far beyond his means. Yeah. Um, but eventually the Holy Prophet found out. Not only the Holy Prophet, uh, you know, may peace and blessings be upon him, 
uh, he came post rather he encouraged you know his other companions as well and they all got together and they financially as well as in labor assisted him and as a result he was ultimately you know able to gain his freedom so this is a prime example to show that those who are in need how should and the richer and the society should help them uh, to come out you know come out of, uh, of of the difficult time these are just few examples obviously from the life of the prophet right imam uh, i have a couple of questions as well uh, and the first one is about uh, zakat so we haven't uh, spoken much about uh, about that how does zakat uh, or the system of zakat helps uh, how does that help with circulation of wealth in an islamic economic system Yes, uh, zakat is again one of the pillars of Islam. Um, there are five pillars of Islam, and zakat being one of them. Uh, zakat basically means to purify, you know, your wealth. And um, in Islam, as we've been discussing, uh, a heavy responsibility comes on those who are well off, those who are affluent. Um, and and zakat basically is that they are expected uh, if. If there is a saving, if there's a, there's a large sum of saving, you know, with the affluent people, with the well-off people, they're expected to donate a portion uh, of it uh, for the for the need of uh, of those who are obviously of the destitute of the society. And this is again, as I said, a very um, brief um, concept of of zakat. There, there are obviously much more detail to it, uh, but we see that you know uh, this system in in the past as well has enabled Islamic governments to the point where. there was no one you know in need i remember in the time of uh, you know a uh, uh, second caliph of the prophet muhammad may peace be upon him uh, hazrat umar in his time uh, due to the strong governance um, you know and due to the strong uh, establishment of the zakat system uh, there were companions who used to say that you know they would go out some time to to donate something but they would not find anyone on the street they would not find someone you know in need because the government the government was providing you know for 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 all those who were in need and there was no need for any individual to go out on the street and you know start donating and that obviously ran through the system of zakat uh, which was again uh, contributed by by the well of of the society right so uh, just to get uh, just to give our listeners a sense of what um, uh, you know how revolutionary the system can be you 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 just mentioned that uh, there were no uh, poor people left as a result of the system but just to sort of uh, give this a uh, real life example in the in the current context so um uh, i've just I've done a back of the envelope calculation of the uh, uh, richest people the top 10 billionaires um, of the world and their total wealth comes to about uh, uh, 1100 billion um and so what what percentage so if that wealth was um was just kept as wealth and not used um throughout the year and most of this is surplus wealth for for these billionaires um what percentage of that in in an islamic economic system would be then set aside every year and and used for um uh, for helping poverty for example uh one thing just to you know comment on you mentioned that um, you've calculated of the 11 richest people in the world you know if uh, we see in the world normally uh, the rich people do you know give um, in charity sure uh, but when when you minutely observe it you see that they do it um when uh, they do it on every blue moon time mm-hmm. they don't do it consistently this is where islam comes in Islam encourages that if you are going to give in charity it should be done regularly you know there's a saying of the prophet as well where the prophet said that 
a good deed or a desirable deed in the sight of God is not something which is done, you know, out of the blue once, regardless how great that would be. But it's it's the deed which is done consistently. It may be very small, very minute. So this is the beauty of zakat as well. You know, zakat is expected to pay it, uh, you know, regularly. Uh, and once you do something regularly, you know, um, it's easier to, you know, take advantage of it and to provide that, uh, you know, support to, to the needy. The percentage is obviously 2.5 um, right. um, when you speak of zakat itself. Right, excellent. So so essentially, you know, 2.5%, that's, uh, that's close to 25 billion dollars. Uh, uh, that would be taken um set aside every year from this wealth if this wealth indeed all this wealth was surplus wealth from just these top 10 billionaires and uh, again just to put this into context uh, i was speaking to the um to the program director of uh, unicef a few weeks ago and she mentioned that if only unicef had about 30 billion dollars they could eliminate uh, child hunger in in the world it could just be it would just be eliminated. So, you know, that is how powerful the system can be. And as you said, this is something which has to be done consistently year on year. So if this amount of wealth was surplus for the next year, then, you know, a similar 2.5% would be deducted um, uh, from that as well. Um, there are uh, a couple of more questions that uh, that we had. We are, however, coming up to the 8 o'clock news, so if it'd be okay for you to stay online and uh, we'll take the news break and when we come back, we will continue this discussion as to how revolutionary the Islamic economic system can be in um, uh, especially uh, in um, in times in in times of need and in um, in the crisis times that we are uh, facing in many countries, including um, uh, the UK. So if you can uh, just stay tuned, we shall be back right after these messages and the news break. You're listening to the Voice of Islam radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. Today is Monday the 6th of March 2023. The time is 8.02 a.m. And we, before we went on to the news break, we were talking about the Islamic economic system. And we were talking to our imam in Huddersfield, Imam Sabahat Karim, uh, who was giving us uh, a detailed take on what the Islamic system uh, looked like. Assalamualaikum, Imam uh, Sabahat, are you still um, on the line? Yes, Walikum Islam, yes, I'm here. Excellent. Peace be with you. Thank you very much for uh, for staying on the line. Uh, yeah, so we had a, a couple of more questions uh, before we wrapped up um, uh, this segment. So the first question, uh, Imam Sabah, if I can ask you, is, uh, within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, there is another system um, which is uh, the system of Vasayat, whereby 10%, at least 10%, you can uh, you can dedicate um, um, 25, uh, you can dedicate up to one third of your inheritance and wealth um, um, to um, uh, to the community and to charity as well. But uh, um, the minimum is uh, is 10%. Can you just 
give a very brief um, uh, take on what uh, what that system of uh, will or in or or wasiyat is in uh, within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and how that can help uh, fight poverty and hunger around the world. Um, yes, as you mentioned, that uh, there is a system called uh, al wasiyat, uh, which means the will, uh, where the founder of the community started this system where he exhorted um, those members who were advanced in their spirituality and advanced in their understanding of Islam within the community. He exhorted them, he admonished them if they like, if they want to achieve high you know, uh, excellence uh, in their spirituality, they should make further sacrifices. And that should be done, obviously, through uh, enhancing their morals, <clears throat> enhancing um, their deeds, and enhancing their, in their financial sacrifices. <clears throat> so the will, basically, uh, the book, it's a book, uh, you know, which was written by uh, the founder himself, where he has gone through the whole plan, uh, that how one can obviously advance uh, in, in his more moral and, and spiritual state. Um, and again, as I said, he has given steps uh, to advance forward. And one of them is that, uh, you know, um, the, those who would like to move forward, they should write a will, they should commit uh, to a will where uh, they pledge, they promise um, to donate, you know, 10% of their uh, monthly earnings. And uh, they would also, you know, leave 10% of their property once they depart from this world. And this may sound, you know, uh, strange to some, but uh, it's not, uh, you know, strange as such. Uh, just recently, I remember there's a very interesting story. Recently, I was speaking to, speaking to one of uh, the members here in Huddersfield. He purchased uh, a property here, uh, not very far from the town. Um, so he took he took me to, to to the property, and he was explaining that you know how he was able to gain this property, um, you know, in, on a reasonable price. And eventually, he told me uh, there was a church actually, you know, in front of the property. Eventually, he told me when I asked him that you know uh, who was the you know previous owner, and he told me that uh, there was a, a Christian lady, a very devoted Christian lady, uh, you know, who had no uh, you know children. And uh, she recently sadly passed away. Um, and she had left a will uh, that, you know, the whole uh, income generated after selling the property should be donated to the to the church. So the right. whole sum was, and this is not, again, as I said, a very old story. This mm. is a very recent one. Yes. The whole, you know, um, you know, generated income from the property was mm. donated to the, to the church. So similarly, you know, for the service of Islam, um, you know, the founder of uh, the Muslim community, he encouraged members to, to take part in, you know, um, uh, you know, financial contributions as well. And that, as you mentioned, uh, starts... Uh, from 10% to, uh, you know, to one third uh, of their monthly income, as well as when they depart from this world, uh, from from the, you know, from the property that they, they leave behind. Excellent. And uh, finally, Imam Sabahat, um, we've talked a, a great deal about how interest is, is prohibited. Um, the other alternative economic system that the world has seen so far is that of uh, the communist um, economic system. Um, uh, just to clarify the the um uh, the islamic economic system or the um uh, the components of an islamic economic system we, you did um, uh, briefly touch upon it is um uh, is earning um uh, or or recognizing um somebody's capability or comp- competence or efficiency and using that efficiency to um to generate wealth uh, prohibited in islam uh, no, of course not. As I mentioned earlier as well, yeah. you know, um, 
Islam encourages and rather uh, puts the responsibility of the state to create such campaigns to stretch, uh, to create such environment where people can thrive in their in, in their professional life, you know, um, and they're able to obviously, you know, uh, not only uh, move forward themselves in their life, but as well as uplift the society as in whole. So we must remember if one individual thrives, um, you know, in his profession, financially, etc., uh, that also brings, you know, uh, a standard high for, for the society in general as well. So, uh, again, Islam is very pro, uh, you know, for the individuals to to march forward in their professional life, to, to get to earn more, uh, as well as, you know, as long as, uh, in fact, as long as they understand that it brings larger responsibility for them mm. where they should help the local society you know the starting from the local society then mm. you know moving forward to uh, to the, the national level excellent thank you so very much imam sabad kareem for joining us all the way from Huddersfield. thank you so very much for joining us so early in the morning really appreciate uh, your input this was um uh, this was very uh, this full of information this was uh, very enlightening as well and i'm sure our listeners would have enjoyed it Thank you very much once again for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. So that was uh, Imam Sabad Karim uh, from Huddersfield uh, giving us a detailed take on what the Islamic system, economic system, actually looks like. And we've talked about um, how different that system is from both capitalism and communism. Um, and and uh, and if I can say that probably the time is now right for for the world to try this economic system as well because we we've seen that the communist system has certainly failed, the capitalist system is failing people, uh, rich are getting richer, uh, poor are getting poorer. Um, there are all sorts of problems. Uh, you know, here in the UK we see a lot of people still homeless, um, sleeping rough. Uh, this poverty, uh, this rampant poverty now. Uh, people are having uh, still to choose between uh, heating and eating, and then uh, there, there are all sorts of other problems. So I think uh, the time is probably right for the world to uh, to look at an alternative system, and Islam provides a, a great alternative uh, in every which way. And with those comments, we will wrap up this, uh, this first segment um, of the um, UK economy in recession, um, as well as what the Islamic economic system actually looks like. We shall now take a quick break. And when we come back, we will delve right into the second topic, which is something which has been discussed in the newspapers this morning as well. And that is about migrant crossings and um, the, um, uh, uh, the, the really the, uh, the social... Um, uh, m- uh, social malaise that, uh, as well as the economic malaise that these migrants um, face in the countries that actually uh, they are from, as well as the social and economic responsibility that the countries that they are migrating to have in this respect as well. So please do stay tuned for that. We shall now take a quick break, and when we come back, we will delve right into that discussion. <laughs> Ashafi, the healer, is a divine attribute of God Almighty. 
Man must always remember that God is the source of all healing. And when prayer becomes a source of such miraculous healing through the will of God, a believer makes great progress in faith, in the oneness of God and His dominion over creation. And he is reminded of his purpose in life, which is to continue to progress and advance in spirituality. In certain conditions, people afflicted with certain illnesses seek adequate medical care at advanced facilities, yet they may or may not recover. Similarly, in underdeveloped countries, it has been observed that many afflicted with illnesses do not have the facilities or the resources to seek medical help. Yet they recover, as though miraculously through the power of prayers. This proves that it is indeed God, the healer, who has the power to grant healing and health. And a believer has firm faith on this attribute of Allah. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said to a physician, You are only a soother to your patient. Its physician is he who has created him. People afflicted with illnesses should never think that visiting a certain doctor or a certain hospital is what will become the cause of their cure. But it is only God's grace and mercy that will provide them with relief to complete health. The doctor only plays the role of a medium or providing treatment, which can only be beneficial if God so wills. And that is the reason why prayers are required at every step of the way. God has provided a cure for every illness, and many herbs and insects contain cures, even snake venom. One such example is that of the honeybee. And to describe the medical properties of honey, the Holy Quran has used the term, therein is a cure for men. If we dwell upon the Quran, it was through revelation that an ordinary bee was instructed the way and the process to make honey a cure for physical ailments. And in fact, all animals are guided in a similar way. In reality, revelation is essential for every activity. Therefore, how can man reject the value of this divine scheme? The promised Messiah on whom be peace 
said that a worldly man believes that his own efforts suffice him to achieve success in all his endeavors. But we must remember that without supplication, there is no success. And what we achieve as a result of this supplication is also a type of revelation. Just like medicine alone cannot cure, it is important to follow the directions of usage and proper way of administering it. Similarly, the guidance is present, but people do not know how to follow it. The promised Messiah on whom be peace has said that many who have entered the Jamaat were those who indulged in all sorts of bad habits before their pledge of allegiance. Yet, after joining the Jamaat, this has brought about a great change in their habits and keep a great desire to cleanse themselves of all bad habits. These are the clear indications that today, the only way to salvation is through the promised Messiah on whom be peace. Therefore, believers should rejoice that they are the heirs to the promises contained in the Holy Quran, and the results of these promises will be in their favor. Al-Mu'min The inspirer of faith, the one who places faith in the hearts of his servants and protects those who seek refuge in him. Allah is the friend of those who believe. He brings them out of all kinds of darkness into light. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Monday the 6th of March 2023. The time is 8.22 a.m. And we are about to delve into the second topic of the morning, which is about the migrant crossings and um, the the loss of uh, lives in that process. So at least 59 migrants, including 12 children, have died uh, and dozens more are feared missing after they bought sank in rough seas of southern Italy um, a few days ago. The vessel broke apart while trying to land near Croton on Sunday. Migrants from Afghanistan, Pakistan, Somalia and Iran were on board. A baby was also among those dead, according to Italian officials. Uh, many people who visited the scene said um, uh, as many as, um, uh, as, as a dozen people may still be missing. The vessels which sailed from Turkey and was carrying people from Afghanistan, Iran and several other countries sank in rough seas before dawn um, at a seaside resort on the eastern coast of Calabria. So we will use uh, uh, this story to talk um, about the migrant crossing in general and the uh, the first guest that we have to talk about this um, is from Amnesty Amnesty International UK, Mr. Steve Walters Simmons. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the breakfast show. Thank you very much. Good morning. Good morning, uh, Mr. Simmons. So, um, uh, tell us about uh, uh, about uh, firstly about this uh, this very tragic incident. Well, I mean the, the the recent incident in the Mediterranean is one of a very long line of awful tragedies mm. that have happened in that sea over several years now. Mm. Um, and the simple position is that 
there are people who need to, desperately need to make dangerous journeys to try and find safety because there are no safe journeys that are made available for them. And sadly, over recent years, response of particularly European nations, including the UK, has been to make those journeys deliberately less and less safe Hmm. because governments believe that will deter people from making the journeys and that will bring them to an end. And of course, what we have seen is it, it doesn't bring the journeys to an end. It simply has more devastating consequences for people's lives. Mr. Simmons, do you think that we as a people have become more selfish generally, globally? Uh, because um, the governments obviously want to do this because they want to increase their ratings and they want to improve their um, uh, their um, election chances and they want to become more popular. But uh, I guess they are trying to do that because uh, this is what people want. Would that be a fair comment? Well, I think we do have to face the fact that it is what some people appear to want. Hmm. Um, I think we should always be very careful when we talk about people or the public. Um, The public is made up of very large numbers of people with very differing views and perspectives, including many people who would like to see a completely different response um, to refugees. But... It's undoubtedly the case that nations and the governments that lead them have become increasingly uh, hostile and, as you put it, selfish, increasingly um, desiring of protecting um, what those nations have um, from the idea of sharing that with anybody else. And let's remember, European nations um, are amongst the most wealthy in the world still and have been for a very, very long time. European nations are also amongst um, those nations which tend to see relatively few refugees compared to um, other often much poorer countries um, around the world. Certainly, if we compare the situation to, to Lebanon and Jordan or Pakistan and Iran, or countries like Uganda and Ethiopia. These are countries that for decades have been hosts to very, very large numbers of refugees. Um, countries like ours have, have, have never really um, provided that sort of response and don't want to. And I, I think, unfortunately, the reality is that if governments persist in that, then these are the tragedies that will continue to result. Sure. So there is this uh, this obviously human argument. Uh, there's this um, this argument about uh, about ethics. But if we look at some of the the places these uh, migrants are originating from, for example, um, there's a, there's Afghanistan in the list. There's uh, there's even been people from Yemen. Both of these uh, there've been people from Iraq. Um, all three of these countries have been subject to wars which have been funded by the UK, um, actively funded uh, and supported by, by the UK. So do you not think that the, the people who've been displaced from these countries, UK has a moral responsibility to host them? 
Um, I, I do think the UK, as well as other nations, has both a moral and legal responsibility. I, mm. I don't think that, that how you describe that is the totality of it, although it's certainly part of what's important. Right. I, I think you could go back to a starting point, which is, firstly, countries like the UK, con- most Western um, countries, and certainly Western European countries, have profited at the expense of the mm. rest of the world over decades and centuries. Mm. And you know, there's a reason why the UK is now still a relatively wealthy country compared to some of the countries that you've mentioned. There's a reason why Afghanistan, for example, is a relatively poor country. Mm. That's not something that happened in my lifetime mm. or my parents' lifetime. It's something about how this world developed to the advantage of some rather than others, over hundreds and hundreds of years. And then you add on top of that that in the middle of the last century, this country, the UK, and others, agreed to take on not just a moral responsibility, but a legal responsibility to share in the role of providing protection to refugees. So... (laughs) I, I think it's, it's, it's relatively straightforward. We have a legal obligation that we agreed freely as a nation. We have clearly advantages as a nation in terms of wealth compared to many other places. Mm. And on top of that, as you say, um, our nation and others has engaged in um, politics and, and, and conflict elsewhere in the world. And you can argue about the rights or the wrongs of that engagement, but the simple fact is that it has had hmm. the implications for people that has caused them to need to move. So, of course, we should take some share of responsibility for the people who are forced to flee, rather than thinking that it is always someone else's problem rather than our own. Right, exactly. Um, let's come to the legal side of things now. So um, there was this um, Rwanda plan that the government, the conservative government, came up, uh, come up, um, yeah, came up with, and now there is um, uh, this um, uh, this draft plan from uh, from Rishi Sunak's government that this morning's papers are talking about. Your thoughts on um, on on this draft plan? Well, I, I, I'm sorry to say that. Um what Rishi Sunak appears to be planning is nothing more than an extension of exactly the same policies that he and his predecessor and the current Home Secretary and her predecessors have been pursuing for the last several years. Mm. There is a reason why, for example, the asylum system in this country is in utter chaos at the moment, and it has nothing to do with the number of people who've sought asylum. This country still receives relatively few people seeking asylum, and yet our system has fallen apart. And it's fallen apart because policies have been pursued to avoid responsibility and refuse to take it, rather than getting on and processing the claims of people who arrive. And so if we continue down the same road, it's a bit like a gambler who just keeps betting on exactly the same bet that keeps wasting his money and his life. The only difference here is that the the money and the lives that the government is wasting by this policy aren't their own. It's the public's money 
Mm. And it's the lives of refugees who are being laid to waste. So really, we desperately need a government who is going to reverse all of that. And rather than constantly seeking to avoid the responsibilities that we do share with others, is actually going to put our system to taking those responsibilities as fairly and efficiently as we can. Would you say, Mr. Simmons, that um, the government has actually even done their numbers right? I was reading an article about this draft plan in The Guardian this morning, and it says that, uh, according to this article, if everyone who crossed the channel last year was detained for 28 days, on 4th September last year, 9,161 people would have been detained, um, this according to the Refugee Council, four times the current detention estate capacity of 2,286. Well, I, I think the problem is, is, is in a way a little different. The government has got it into its head that if it keeps making the system that we have more and more menacing and unpleasant and frankly nasty and dangerous to mm. people seeking asylum, that it will eventually get to the point where it deters people from coming at all. That's what it's been trying to do. So, of course, its numbers are all wrong because it hasn't had the deterrent effect that it convinced itself it would have. People who are out of options or people who need to flee and have family and connections in this country, they come because, really, there's no sensible, reasonable alternative for them. But the government is, is, you know, the bad bet that the government is making is that somehow by being thoroughly horrible to people in desperate need, it will deter them from arriving at all. And the biggest, the biggest fear that certainly Amnesty has is that we will increasingly get to a point, and there's some evidence of this already, that rather than deterring people from arriving in this country, what the government will achieve is deterring people from coming forward and entering the safety, or what should be the safety, mm. of the asylum system. And instead, we will have ever more people who are living in the shadows of this country, goodness knows what exploitation they are being subjected to, yeah. living thoroughly unsafe and miserable lives that does no good for them, and frankly, does no good for anybody else. Absolutely. Um, the um, uh, there is a, an, an economic um, uh, argument about uh, about migrants as well. Uh, but before we get into that, um, Mr. Simmons, the question, one question that I have in mind is about um, the refugees that we have accepted uh, with open arms um, from. Uh, from Ukraine, for example. Um, why do you think we have a different policy for refugees from Ukraine versus refugees, let's say, from uh, from Eritrea or from Iraq or Yemen? I, I think there are a couple of things that, that, that need to be noted about that. I mean, the first is, is to remember that actually the response of our government at the time of the, um, the escalation in the conflict in Ukraine back in February last year was not immediately welcoming. 
uh, our, our ministers, our Home Secretary of the time, responded by suggesting that, oh, they were going to do nothing, hmm. but, but, but people could maybe apply for sort of temporary work visas or something. Right. Now, there was a different response from the media, there was a different response from the public, and there was a different response from elsewhere in Europe. And it's a perfectly good question to ask, well, why was that response so different? Um, it's, <laughs> I don't think it's possible to escape the fact <laughs> that Ukrainians are white Europeans. Um, yeah. The people that you've mentioned are on the whole have darker skin. Some of them are of um, different faith to what some people in this country regard as the sort of the normal religion of, of, of British people, which obviously isn't true at all. Um, and I'm afraid that we still live with the same xenophobias and racism that, um, that have been persistent in our country and many others for that matter yeah. over many, many years. And it's sad because, frankly, you know, there have been opportunities to start to change that sort of attitude. And the response to Ukrainian refugees is not bad. No one wants to um, undo that. But why, why can we not build with the public people who do want to be supportive to refugees some greater and better understanding that, yes, the situation in Ukraine is terrible and dreadful and people are entitled to safety. There are other places around the world where there are other horrors that are ongoing which get far less attention, get far less support, and the people who have to flee those horrors need just as much safety and security as anybody else. Thank you, Mr. Steve. Uh, just one last question. What is the legal way for someone to move to this country from, let's say, Iraq or Albania? If they want to do a legal move, what, what are the steps they can take where they don't have to travel on boats and sneak into the country? If you are someone who is fleeing for your life because you are at risk of persecution, there are no routes. The way in which the UK government has set up its immigration rules requires that if you come from any place from which there are any significant number of people who flee persecution, requires that you have a visa to make a travel. And those rules make available no visa whatsoever for you to travel for the purpose of seeking safety. And if it's thought that that's why you want that visa, any application you make is to be refused. So the government has chosen that it is the smugglers and the dangerous journeys that people must take because they must get here to make their asylum claims and mm -hmm. there is no government-provided route for them to do so. Before I let you go, Mr. Simmons, one last question. Why do you think the media is complicit with the government in all of this? Why is the media not highlighting the mainstream media? We are, of course, part of media, so we, we are doing that. But the mainstream media, why do you think they are not talking about the issues that we are talking about? Um, again, I think, I think it's a bit mixed. But the reality is that a large part of the media feeds off politics just as politics feeds off the media. Mm. And I'm sorry to say that many of the prejudices that you can see in public life 
um, I guess you can see in the media world too. So, you know, there is there is a long way to go to persuade um, people, particularly people in power, but people who have influence, whether that's in the media, in politics, in other institutional life, to recognise the legal, moral responsibilities that we all have, hmm. and for that matter, the good sense in respecting and acting on those, rather than constantly trying to avoid the responsibilities we do have at enormous cost, most importantly to the lives of refugees, but actually enormous cost much more widely than that. Uh, Mr. Steve Walders-Simmons, uh, thank you. I, I can't thank you enough for joining us this morning. Uh, this was um, very enlightening. Thank you for being candid uh, and thank you for coming on to the show this morning. Really, really appreciate it. That's my very great pleasure. Have a great day. Have a great rest of the week and all the very best with the excellent work that Amnesty International is doing. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. So that was uh, Mr. Steve Walders-Simmons, who is... Um, the Programs Director at Amnesty International UK, uh, Refugee and Migrants Rights Program Director at Amnesty International UK. Let me go straight to our last guest of the show, Ms. Olivia Field, who is the Head of Health and Resilience Policy at the British Red Cross. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Hi, it's great to be here and have this very important conversation with you today. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you very much for joining us. You're absolutely right. This is um, this is a very, very important conversation and fortunately not one that um, you will generally hear in the media about. Um, let me start by asking you, uh, Ms. Field, there is obviously a, a huge amount of debate in this country about you know people coming here and taking our jobs and people coming here and taking our taking away our livelihoods. What is the what is the actual economic argument around these migrants around migration? Are they a, a net benefit? Uh, and and I'm sure there must have been studies conducted, or are they a net cost to a, to to the society they they come into? Well, I think first of all, it's really important to note that people who are coming here to claim asylum. Uh, while they're waiting for a decision on their asylum claim, which we know now is taking, you know, for the majority of people over six months, if not years, mm. they're not allowed to work and they're not allowed to access benefits, um, mainstream benefits. So that economic argument kind of falls down at the, at the first hurdle. Right. What we do do in our system, though, is because we don't allow people while they're waiting for a decision um, to work, you know, people go for years of not being able to, to work and develop their skills. And then that does put them in a position where they're less able to contribute when they might eventually get the chance. So our system's not set up to enable people to be as productive as they could possibly be and contribute back to society. Do we really understand and does the public in the UK really understand and have the context of why people undertake these life-threatening journeys to Europe and to the UK? No, I think the majority of people don't understand why people take these dangerous journeys. I mean, when you look at, at, at the people who come here to claim asylum, who are crossing the channel, for example, they're from countries like Afghanistan, Syria, Eritrea, Iran, and Yemen. We know that the large majority of people, they're fleeing war, they're fleeing persecution, they're fleeing violence. Mm. 
yet there's this narrative that people are coming here to abuse the system. What we do know is that people are generally aware of the risks when they're making these dangerous journeys across the Channel or across the Mediterranean, but they've decided that whatever they're fleeing from is worse and it's worth the risk. And that's really important to remember because we often lose that kind of real basic humanity when we have these conversations. Why is all of this falling on deaf ears as far as the government is concerned? It's really difficult to say at the moment, but what we do know is that that refugees and people seeking asylum, like the main drivers are what I said before, so people fleeing war, persecution, violence, and then people often kind of make dangerous journeys for other reasons like family networks. What we do know is that people are rarely aware of countries' asylum systems, so that really puts to question policies of deterrence and, and their effectiveness. So, for example, the government has and, and is proposing to expand detention, and we've already seen efforts to offshore people to places like Rwanda. But when people aren't aware of these policies and the policy details, they have very little effect in terms of acting as a deterrent, but they come at great cost to both the taxpayer, but most importantly, of course, to the people who, who need our protection. Um, so it's, it's trying to show, I think, in many cases that we want to control in many respects the uncontrollable so we know because the biggest drivers are, are what people are fleeing from in the short term that is really difficult for our governments and, and and for ourselves to do anything about you know we're not going to fix very quickly some of the situations that people are fleeing from so we try to think of other ways to to deter people to stop them risking their lives but ultimately these policies don't work and the main drivers the main reasons why we're seeing people more people risk their lives, and I should say it's a very small proportion who even do attempt to to make these dangerous journeys. Most of the world's refugees continue to live in neighbouring countries or even in the country and that, that they've experienced uh, their persecution, war or violence in. Um, but when we do see people making these crossings, they're not aware of these policies um, and, and, and they're going to continue to try to make these attempts no matter what our policies are. So the best thing we can do is focus on how to have a much more efficient system so we process people quickly, that's in their best interest and in ours, and also look to, to create more safe ways for people to come here. At the moment, most people have no choice but to take very, very dangerous routes. Um, if they if they want to seek protection in Europe and indeed in, in, the, in the UK. We know that lots of those people making those journeys are trying to reunite with family. Our refugee family reunion system is, is far too restrictive at the moment. It doesn't allow, for example, siblings or children who are older than 18 to reunite with their loved ones. But we also need to create new schemes like humanitarian visas. So where we're helping people access visas before they've established themselves as refugees so that they can come here and claim asylum. And we've seen, you know, I I heard you speak about Ukraine before, but you only have to look at the Ukraine example to see why these safe routes work. There's a reason we're not seeing Ukrainians risk their lives across the English Channel Mm. at the moment at scale, despite what's happening. And that's because they're able to access visas and come here safely. Thank you, Ms. Field. Uh, just uh, to finish off, uh, do you think uh, we should put measures in place to reduce the number of refugees crossing? Should we, uh, because 
obviously we are changing the 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 policies is not in our hands do you think uh we should stop people um forcibly not to make these journeys or should we let them keep trying as it, they sh- they should have the right to i think whenever we try to actively stop people that ends in kind of more dangerous routes for those very people who who we already know are fleeing danger um and they just simply don't work so when you close down one route people might try another imagine if you've you've been separated from your only living relatives you will do what you can to be reunited with them i think most people would agree with that so you're going to resort to dangerous journeys for for, for a variety of reasons so what we'd be much better doing is making sure that we had a very efficient system so that we can process people quickly and effectively once they make a claim in the UK but also create those safe routes expand refugee family reunion expand resettlement and introduce new schemes like humanitarian visa schemes so that fewer people have to resort to these dangerous routes to get here Miss Olivia Field really a pleasure to have you this morning thank you so very much for joining us um and and enlightening us as well as our listeners. Thank you very much. Thank you. So that was Miss Olivia Field who is the head of health and resilience policy at the British Red Cross giving us some uh, some great solutions there as well. Right, we are coming to the end of the show. Um but before we end uh, Imam Imam Anan if I can come to you and ask you uh, you know we've been having this discussion about the responsibility of of nations responsibilities of countries who are wealthier who have more resources to support uh, people um and uh, people from countries who have um who don't have enough resources who are uh, escaping even sometimes wars that uh, that we are responsible for what sort of responsibility does islam place on um uh, on hosting refugees for example and and maybe is there an example in islam of um uh, of refugees being hosted by um uh, by another nation yeah thank you um well uh, islam's uh, teachings um i think uh, a lot of it was uh, already mentioned by imam sabahat who was with us earlier um he gave um, some sayings of the holy prophet his examples and the teachings islam re- represents to regarding uh, just taking care of each other taking care of the needy so this is i think in the same category someone who's uh, coming here for and looking for help uh, it's just uh, just humanly very harsh to deny him or um, send him away so our responsibility is to help them now um, and uh, mrs uh, steve valders um simmons and uh, miss field they also mentioned that there's a lot of problems in our policies which are it's like a double edged sword is firstly they're saying you are they're not allowing you visas to come and do the asylum and the only way to do to have an asylum is by you have to be in the country already exactly and 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 you have to take undertake a, a dangerous perilous journey to be able to do that yeah he mentioned there's no other way mm. so uh, as as uh, as Uh, countries who are more fortunate who have uh, who are um, richer or more wealthier it's our responsibilities to open up ways there should be controlled you, you can't let everyone in there, there has to be some security mm. protocols and everything but like uh, like miss field mentioned with the ukrainian mm. um, refugees there is a scheme this 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 year or since the war started 150,000 
refugees have come to the UK mm. and that's that's a huge number compared to like 50,000 tried to mm. sneak in with on, on boats mm. um so we have three times as much refugees we already let in from Ukraine mm. so i think the problem is not with the numbers uh, the problem is with our policy policies mm. so uh, if if we uh, if we uh, consider islam's teachings which is of just pure love and uh, good intention we should accommodate these people and uh, islam says regarding neighbors for example that you should treat your neighbor in such a way oh actually the companions were saying that when the holy prophet muhammad peace be upon him was telling us about the rights of our neighbors we thought that he would go so far and so beyond that he would uh, um include them in our um in our in our wealth in our um inheritance so he gave the neighbors so many rights that wait, make sure your neighbor does not is not annoyed by you he's not annoyed by your by your tongue by your hands he's not hurt he's he if he has any issues any problems is your responsibility to help him so it, it's it, this also applies to the refugees actually even more so the refugees are more in need so in islam just teaches that you have to take them in that you can't say that we don't want you into a country or we, we don't have space which is obviously not true so basically very very simply put is that we should do everything to accommodate them and we have the capacity in the uk we definitely have the capacity in t- in terms of an example from uh, from early islam so there was a migration that uh, that happened that took place uh, where uh, the prophet um, uh, prophet muhammad may peace and blessings of allah be upon him he migrated from from mecca to the city of medina uh, yeah. about 1400 years ago and um he was accompanied by uh, by many other people um as well there were many other people who had migrated along with him and they were called uh muhajirs or refugees they were refugees yeah. and then there were the hosts uh, who were um ansars or or the residents of medina so what was the attitude um of those hosts at that time and what was the islamic teaching um uh, given uh Uh, given to support refugees at that time 1400 years ago definitely is such a long time ago and the difference is so huge at that time you know we have like so many free houses if you need more houses we can build at that time there was a, a huge migration from mecca to medina hmm. by the muslims because of persecution the people who came to uh, medina uh, which was the host city they didn't have anything most meccans used to be traders they they were businessmen they were not good at like farming and stuff and the the people of medina sure. they were majority were farmers sure, majority farmers yeah yeah so um so they they couldn't even start farming somewhere on the side to make their business they, mm. they were businessmen but they had nothing left because they migrated mm. the holy prophet muhammad he was um sort of the the leader because of uh, he he was the leader of the muslims so and being being majority of them being muslims he he was the leader so what he decided is that he he appointed each uh, meccan to one medina family right so he said he uh, it's called akhwat in 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 terminology Our brotherhood yeah. brotherhood yeah. he said that this person mm. is now your brother so you have to keep him in your house mm. uh, you have to share everything with him your mm. house your wealth your um, money food you share it with him and to make him stand up on his feet. Mm. 
some companions they had this 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 pure heart and they went so far that they they offered um some of them had multiple wives they offered some uh, some of them offered their wives to their companions right. because you have needs there's there's other needs than mm. food and money mm. so they went so far to offer their wives wow. and the, the wives also willingly it, it wasn't mm. it wasn't something forced mm. Mm. so this is just the attitude but in today's age we we don't need to do that right we have yeah. so much um, capacity we don't need to uh, keep someone in our own house to accommodate them right in the yeah. uk we, we can, just need to have a bigger heart yeah we, you can have a, <laughs> you can have refugees uh, yeah. there's this camps there's even mm. though they are not in as good uh, in in as um good conditions as you, someone in in your mm. own house mm. but uh, as you mentioned it's it's the attitude is the principle so this we need to follow this principle in this country as well if somebody comes from abroad he's seeking help he doesn't have anything he, he doesn't have anywhere to stay mm. we need to provide them Mm. We need to help them, and uh, we need uh, to make it easy for them rather than making more difficult for exactly. them. Exactly, we yeah. need to make it easy for them, yeah. and then uh, in return, those those Meccans, what the the result of this uh, brotherhood, what it was that those Meccans were good businessmen, and later on, that that Medina became a business hub, and those businessmen knew how to do business, mm. so they would take the farm, uh, the, the 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 fruits and the crops of the farmers, mm. and they would help them sell it and create a profit for the for the farmers so when you they were helping the migrants exactly so eventually return, they, absolutely eventually the the, 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 the economics actually yeah. turned on its head and they began began to help so overall the, the, the whole of economy the economy and and the environment of medina went up yeah benefit just yeah Excellent example there. Thank you very, very much, uh, uh, Imam Usman Manan. Uh, and with that, we come to the end of this segment and today's program. Thank you very much for joining us. I must thank our producer, Thaymina Chima, our researchers, Faiza Mansoor, Amber Kamal, and Mehna Brahman, as well as excellent help from uh, the tech room from Mr. Akib. Thank you also to my uh, fellow presenter here, Imam Usman Manan. Uh, thank you to all our guests, Imam uh, Sabat Karim from Huddersfield for joining us, as well as our um, excellent guests from Amnesty International UK, Mr. Steve Walters-Simmons, as well as Ms. Olivia Field from British Red Cross. Um, if you haven't had a chance to listen to uh, the discussion today, so we've talked about two topics. The first was about the Islamic economic system and what that economic system is all about. And the second is about the refugee crisis and uh, what uh, what are the issues that there are and what needs to be done about that as well. If you haven't had a chance to listen to both of these discussions, please go into SoundCloud um, and you can download the recording. You can also go to our website, www.worstofislam.co.uk and uh, download the recording of the program. Thank you very much once again for joining us. We will be back in a week's time next Monday. There will be another program, uh, another live breakfast show tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. Please do tune in for that. Until next week, um, assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you.